Matthew 25, 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may be not enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today. Therefore, keep watch, for you do not know the hour or the time. Each one of these parables we've gone to has a a summary statement at the end, and, and they're not always obvious um, how they're connected to the, to the rest of the parable. Um, the, let's see, I, I have a... Uh, so the first one was, so the last shall be first, and the first will be last. Um, it was about the payment of the workers in the vineyards. The next one we did uh, last week was, for many are invited, but few are chosen. And that was about the wedding feast and being invited in. And then this week we have, therefore keep watch because you do not know the hour or the day. There's another translation that says, therefore stay awake, which is a a possible translation. And it raises the question of all the virgins slept. Um, And so how do you say that they're keeping watch? And that's part of Part of the challenge for this parable and, and the other parables is we've been uh, going through these parables, have been trying to hold out this phrase, you, you can't conceive nor can I the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God from Grand Green. And this week, it hits, I think, um, pretty pointedly, especially I'm not often amazed as I read the scripture over and over again. Um, I think just because of over-familiarity, but this week, even hearing Carla read it again, I was like, what an odd, odd parable. Um, five, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like five, ten virgins. Um, just the start, and then five wise and five foolish, um, that, that, that they wait all night, and the, the bridegroom comes at midnight. And, and the, the problem with this parable, the struggle with this parable in the world today is you'll find many people who want to save the foolish virgins. Um, they're the weak and the wounded, and, and it was wrong for the wise ones not to share their oil with them. Um, and that is one of the ones, I mean, as we look at this passage, it's connected in Matthew 25, as I've been trying to give more context with these sermons, to this last of the big five discourses in Matthew's gospel. And the last one, which we'll talk about next week, the sheep and the ghosts, has to do with sharing food and water and drink. 
And yet in this one, they're not, um, to be fair, they're not celebrated for not sharing them, but neither is there a point that says they should have shared their oil. And part of it is, I think, is that our, our discomfort with this, um, for me at least, it shows to sort of a lack of belief in what's going on here. A laugh, lack of sort of like, what would it mean for the bridegroom to show up without lights if all the oil had gone out? But there is, in, in the Gospels and Paul's letters and in the Old Testament, a body per- being prepared in the world for the Lord when the Lord arrives. Israel in the Old Testament, church in the New Testament. And so for them to say, let's all just not have anything for when this bridegroom arrives, is to say that we don't believe in this arrival sort of coming. That it would be better to live in sort of this flat plane of existence than, than have this anticipation for what's going to come. That God is coming and on the way. And so this week, it, it struck me, is that this one is this strange, uh, strangeness of the mercy of God. Um, and, and like the first one, way more generous than we expected. This one, way more strict than we expected. And there's this sort of freedom to who God is able to be in these parables, if we read them closely, that should confound us in in important ways so that we, um, I think, are startled awake, so that we become those who can keep watch, so that we can become those who sort of listen and become this body for Christ who is coming as a bridegroom to his people. Needless to say, I'm, I'm not going to try and rescue the foolish virgins. Um, and, and part of that, as we, as we go through this, is this is connected to the Sermon on the Mount, which we just finished in many ways. But there's the wise man who builds his house on the rock and the foolish person who builds on the sand. And most of the time with that, we don't try to save the foolish person who builds on the sand. We accept that Christians are called to be the people who build their house on the rock. The problem is the foolish person's house falls down. And so I think we have the right impulse there to say, what is this asking of us? And so with this passage, as much as we can get fascinated by should we share our oil, we're missing the call that it has on us. It's claiming something from us as the people of God, more than it's asking us, do you share oil or do you not share oil? And so this is the, the start of that 25th chapter. We're going to skip the parable of the talents, um, and then jump to the parable of the sheep and the goats next week. The week after that, we have Palm Sunday and Passion Sunday. We, uh, in the lectionary, to some extent, combines them. We read the Palm Sunday celebration that we hear, that we, um, hallelujah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then we also uh, will say together, crucify him, crucify him, in the same Sunday to show how quick these scenes turn in Jerusalem. And, and we hold those together largely because people don't come to Good Friday services anymore. That's why the lectionary did that, is they put them together so that you, if you heard, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, have a great week. It's spring, baseball starting, and then you come back to church next week and it's, uh, he's not here, he is risen. You missed a pretty big part of the story. Um, you missed pretty much that that if Christ is not crucified, then our faith isn't like, you missed the whole point. And so we hold those together. It's a longer reading that week, um, but it's so that we can hear what it is that makes the glorious good news of Easter shine all the brighter. And so this is this this last teaching series, and then we'll do the sheep and the goats. But the sheep and the goats, um, 
The story before this about the wicked tenant or the wicked man who sort of is left in charge of an estate and is supposed to feed people, this one, the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats all contain sort of a hiddenness or an absence. In the first one, uh, the one that precedes this at the end of chapter 24, uh, he puts a servant in charge of the estate and he goes away. And the servant gets, um, gets arrogant. Um, I have what he says up here. Um, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time and he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. That this person in this one says, my master is staying away a far time. And then he shows up sooner than expected. And the parable we read this morning about the 10 virgins is they think that he's coming right away. Five of them don't even bring extra oil. And yet he takes longer than expected. And the next one, the master goes away on a journey. And then the final one, uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Christ is sort of hidden in creation, hidden with the least of these in some ways. And so each of these proclaims something missing. Now, if you read the, the parables of Matthew 13 in one of the other discourses, there's this notion in which everything is present. It's, it's a seed. Um, it's leaven working its way through a loaf. It's the secret mystery of the kingdom. But as Jesus is in Jerusalem, awaiting the time in which he will be crucified, died, and risen, he begins to teach them about what it means for him to be absent, what it means for him to be not there. And part of that is, is this challenge, is we can't be those who say, hey, he's been gone a long time, let's take advantage of the moment. Nor can we be those who say, he's coming tomorrow, what's the extra oil for? Or, with the talents, I'm just going to bury them in the ground and not bring them out for the master. That we have these ways in which this is playing out for us. So now to this particular parable, we'll, we'll sort of go through um, in depth, is that at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. This one has a definitively different start too. It's, it's almost like then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Whereas all the other parables sort of begin, that the kingdom of heaven is like this. This one starts in the Greek and, and in the English that it will... It, um, the kingdom of heaven will be like, uh, at that time, that's the phrase we're looking for in the NIV, at that time, the kingdom of heaven, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. There's a more concrete statement to this. And one of the big challenges of this parable in its context and for us in the world today is what uh, scholars call the delayed parousia, the delayed rearrival of Christ. And I just love the word parousia, so I say it all the time. Um, and I try not, I, I don't like being snobby about this, but it's just, when is the parousia going to happen? It just sounds better than like, uh, when is the rapture going to happen? Which is a little bit what we heard of in First Thessalonians and is a doctrine that most people in church history didn't believe until the 1800s. So um, that one we kind of place in the moment. But the parousia, which is this Greek term, which is about sort of this military parade that, that God is going to bring out his captives and march through the city. When is this fulfillment of all things going to happen? When, the, when is the parousia going to be here? And the early church had this notion, and you see it in some of the Gospels, where people say, I'm not going to work anymore because the parousia is going to happen tomorrow. 
And then Paul says things like, well, if they don't work, they don't eat. Um, and then as we look at different portions of, of the Gospels and the New Testament, there's notions in which the parousia is expected uh, near and intimately, almost um, uh, at the moment. And there are those which say that we have to sort of be living our lives in the present. This parable, then the kingdom of like, he heaven is like this, is distinctly preparing the church for that type of moment that there will be a delay for the bridegroom, that the bridegroom shows up at midnight, which is an odd time for the bridegroom to show up. And so we could be like those who say it's happening tomorrow. Why work? Why care? Why do this? God's going to fix it all anyways, and we just don't do anything. We become then like foolish virgins. There's another way, and we'll talk about this at the end, in which we can over emphasize that the parousia is delayed too because it, and we could say it right now too is that it would be like being so wise we don't even go out for the wedding like if, if you really are like well it's not going to happen tomorrow um the le uh, end times freaks the parousia freaks uh they're crazy i'm wiser than that i won't even go out and wait for the bridegroom you're going to miss the whole thing and so this teaching holds together us in that tension. Jesus prepares his people for the time that he will be away. And so this then teaches us how to live in the light of his death and resurrection and this delay between his return again. We'll come back to that at the end. So there are five wise virgins and five foolish virgins. Now, one of the, the best things about reading this isn't even that old of a sermon, but sometimes it's, it's just fun stuff to share. This is Fleming Rutledge. She preached on this at Princeton Seminary not long ago. Many things have changed since I was a Sunday school student growing up. This parable was once called the wise and foolish virgins. Now it's called the wise and foolish bridemaids. I guess bridemaids aren't virgins anymore. Fifty-some years ago when my classmates and I were getting married, quite a few of us actually were. That, in my opinion, was a good thing. That, that was a good thing, in my opinion. Um, it's interesting how these things change, right? Like, it used to be the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, and now it's the bridesmaids. And I think she's right. The reasons why that has changed is you don't assume that bridesmaids are virgins anymore. But there's this notion in that, that Christ is coming to this sort of virgin church. It's a popular thing at this time. And I think it's unwise for us to uh, abandon it, despite with the realities of the world we live in. Oftentimes, and I gave a sermon where I tried to say this once, is that, that in the world today, if you, if you say, I believe X, and somebody points out that you're a hypocrite, you're more likely to give up believing X, then you are to say, I should change my behavior. This is uh, classic studies on this. And what I said in that sermon, and I think it's still true, is it might be worth just embracing our hypocrisy rather than giving up what we believe. Um, I believe that Christ calls us to live peaceable lives. Well, you voted for this, or you did that, or you did this. You're right. I don't believe that Christ calls us to live peaceable lives. Um, but the, the nature of it is we often, and this is test done by psychologists, when we're pointing out where we're hypocritical in our lives, we just give up rather than own 
that there's a gap between who I am and who God calls me to be. And I pray that God will transform me into that in time. But it's not for me to just say, well, I guess that doesn't matter then. You're right. Um, You say you care about the poor, but you don't do anything. You're right. I don't actually care about the poor. (laughs) Not, um, you're right. I could be a little bit more compassionate or sympathetic. Um, That just stood out to me when I was reading this. And I I remember watching this sermon on, um, it was pre-COVID, a long time ago. I was watching it on YouTube because I'm a nerd, and that's what you do on the weekend when you're a nerd, um, is you watch Fleming Rutledge speak on Karl Barth at Princeton. Um, But I think she was almost like booed when she made this comment um, at Princeton Theological Seminary, which to me is like, can't we just own that like we have, are like sheep who have gone astray um, but that God still has truths for us. Just abandoning these things doesn't seem to me the way it should go. But anyways, there's five. That was my weirdest side for the week. I only get five more. Um, they're five and wise and five were foolish. The foolish one took their lamps. And, and it's, I think, worth considering at the start here is that both of them, all ten of them, are invited to await the bridegroom. All 10 of them are invited to be there. And so you may think like, well, this is uh, five are Christians and five aren't Christians. But almost nobody takes that tact with this parable. Almost everybody says this is 10 Christians invited to meet the bridegroom. And what's the challenge is what is the the expectation of when he's going to arrive, of when he's going to be there? And so the five of them are all invited to the wedding, and they take their lamps, but five of them, the foolish, did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. We'll talk about what the oil is in a second, but the... The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Neither you nor I can conceive the appalling straightness of the mercy of God. Who's at fault here? If the bridegroom had shown up when the bridegroom was supposed to, everything would have been fine. The parable seems to contain within it that this delay happens, and we are to be prepared in that. He doesn't show up on time, particularly according to our time, um, in the time that we would like it. And last week, we talked about how in the New Testament, God's patience is normally there. It's always defended as a strong patience to allow for more time for repentance and conversion so that more can come into the... His patience is a kindness for us. And so the delay um, teaches us something about what's going on here, that, that there is a delay in what's happening Then they all became drowsy and fell asleep. I like this one. This teaching reminds me of that wise and foolish teaching back at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that both experience the storms of life. The gospel is not an exemption from the storms that are going to come to your house. It merely provides you a foundation to build on so that your house can withstand the storms of the world. Or breaking it from an individualistic interpretation, it provides a place for the church to build, to be able to survive in a world of violence and destruction. But it doesn't take them out of that. 
So too here with the wise and foolish virgins, they both fall asleep. And there's, there's two ways I sort of look at that. One is it's the comfort of knowing that this is coming and happening. Um, Psalm uh, 130, I think it is, that, we, that I've tried to, Psalm 131, um, that our souls are quiet and we're held like a weaned child by God is, is what that speaks of, is that to be able to fall asleep is a good thing. The phrase I often use for this is a non-anxious presence. Like, uh, and the only like, acronym I've ever come up with in my life is non-anxious presence. It's those people who can take a nap. Um, uh, if you're anxious all the time, taking a nap seems like, what are we doing? We have to be awake. We have to do something. And, and this image, it, it was funny because when I looked up for images of this parable, um, many of them would portray the foolish virgins as one dressed in a way that wouldn't suggest they were virgins, I guess is a nice way to say it. Uh, two, and the, the other ones were all white and sort of waiting there, and the other ones were like off playing guitar, and, and it looked like drink carousing. Is that the old word for it? Drinking, hanging out. Um, and then other ones had the, uh, them asleep, the foolish virgins, but the wise ones keeping vigil, praying, staying awake. That possibility is closed to us in the way that Jesus tells the story, is that all people in this time will fall asleep. Now, the early church, which really struggled with the delay of the parousia, I think more than we do in our modern context, interpret those asleep as those who have died. And it's similar to the Thessalonians that Brian read, reading that Brian read for us, is those who died will be awakened when the trumpet sounds, and they will be gathered to, gathered to Christ. That there's this, um, and so for them, it's, it's this, Trust in that those who have died before Christ returns will be awakened when he shows up. Because some of them, many of them, I don't know, we don't actually know, I guess I should say, uh, many, there's a, there was a common interpretation that Christ would return before you died. Um, and so when people are dying around you and then people your age start to die, you begin to wonder what's going on with this delay here. And so that interpretation that it is those who have died who have fallen asleep and will waken again is a grace to those people. And I think for us, there's, that's truth too, and I, I try to reclaim this as best I can. It's very hard, although reading this parable 10 times this week brings it, is that we too are supposed to expect Christ to return before we die. Because it's where ethics and life and fidelity and goodness flow out of at least in the New Testament. I mean, we found other ways to say you should be a good Christian because of X, Y, and Z, but a lot of Jesus' teaching is you should be a good Christian because he's coming back, and he's going to put the house in order, and you will join and welcome him as those who are brought into the work of a house in order, a place resettled, a new creation, a new cosmos, a renewal of all things. And so you begin to move into people who know that a renewal of all things is coming. You begin to make your way into that place. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come to meet him. This is one that reminds us of all those scenes of trumpets sounding um, and people being gathered to God, people being gathered before God. And this, this cry comes out, and then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us. Instead, you go 
to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. There's a couple things that are going on in this passage. First is, you know, the announcement is coming and they all awake and they trim their laps, but the foolish are afraid that they're going to run out of oil or they need some oil. And it's weird because the oil is not super recognized in the parable. It doesn't say the bridegroom showed up and he was elated that there were some lamps for him. There's a deep concern for the oil that doesn't really say, and that's why they were welcome in. Because what happens next is they're gone when the bridegroom comes. They're not there. It's not that they don't have oil when he arrives, although we might interpret that that's part of it, and I don't think that's the worst thing, but they're actually away. And so they ask, you know, it would be good for us to greet the bridegroom with some light, give us some oil. And they tell them to go and buy some. Now it's midnight, which I think is a weird, this is one of those where this parable gets stranger the more you spend time with it, is it's midnight. Why don't you go to the store and buy some? Doesn't seem um, like a real expectation. And I think that there's one of the things that is true about whatever the oil is, and we'll talk about that in just a second, is that you can't um, really buy it. It needs to be your own. And so what is the oil? Um, I, first off, I would say that I'd never thought about this until this week. I always read this parable more in the sense of, of that they were there and they were expectant. But apparently, as I read all the other stuff this week, church history is very concerned about what the oil is. Um, there are, are people whom it is good deeds. Um, these are the, the two best because they're the most opposite, which is they are good deeds, and then one is they're never good deeds, they're a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and I just love that these two groups war throughout Christian history all the time on, on it's what we do. No, it's not what we do. It's that we know Jesus. And it's like that old life commercial with the kid, why not both? Um, like, why do we always have to choose one or the other? And there's good reason. I, I don't really want to get into it, but like if you think about works, it's like when is enough works? Um, it's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't think actually in my experience has the, um, doesn't free people from anxiety as much as I, you would think it would. Do I have enough of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Am I performing um, most often pious works, my quiet time and this stuff, enough that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? But even um, works of mercy, I think, in the modern world turn into this, feeding the poor, this, that, and the other. Am I doing enough of this to exhibit that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Um, Charity was another popular one. Almsgiving, what we give to the poor, um, fidelity is one that I like. Fidelity to who God is, is the oil, and that sort of keeps us burning. Um, uh, the Bart, uh, Karl Barth interprets it as the, the, the Holy Spirit sort of continuing presence in the church. There are lots of sort of different ways of looking at the oil, but, but it's this way in which we have to prepare it ourselves and we have to bring it for this time when the bridegroom arrives that I think is the point of the parable. Now, it'd be nice to know exactly what it is, but there's, there's teachings that help us because where it continues is they go, uh, while they're out, um, while they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. Which is, uh, and there's a, I should say one thing, with the oil, it doesn't seem like it could be shared. 
if it's fidelity to Christ, good works, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you pick any of those options, it's not quite clear that it's something that could be shared. So the bridegrooms, the wise ones, aren't maybe being neglectful and saying, um, we're not going to give you any of this. It's to say that to prepare yourself for the revival involves actually preparing yourself. Others can't prepare for you. And so while they were on their way to buy the oil, the groom arrived. And I I like this because it's like um, passing ships in the night is the way you look at it. As they go out, he comes in. And there's this way in which if we lose sight of this reclaiming, um, what does it mean to expect the return of Christ? The final words, to keep watch, to stay awake. We begin to go out when Christ begins to come in. And this is where the door ends up shut behind them. The others came and they say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. This is clearly another uh, image to the Sermon on the Mount where those who have done miraculous charismatic signs in the name of Jesus are told, uh, Lord, Lord, um, look what we did in your name. And he says, no, I never knew you. And what in that parable is the thing that separates those who do miraculous signs and those who are welcomed in is trusting words of the Father. It's another option for the oil as well. And so it's, it's, there's a way in which the foolish virgins perhaps are super Christians, as in the same way Matthew 7 was. They were the ones who had the miraculous signs but didn't show fidelity to the word that had come and spoken to them. And so when the bridegroom arrived, they come and they knock on the door, and the door is closed, and the Lord says, "Uh, truly, I don't know you. Know um, could also be translated see, which is one that I like because there's this notion in which I can't see you without the identifying marker of the light. If you don't have that light and you knock on the door, it's I can't see you. Are you one of mine? Are you one of the bridegrooms who've been invited to the feast? I can't see you because that light is not there. This, I think, is a a point for the Holy Spirit's sort of uh, uh, care for us in that. And this is an odd parable because this is the same section of Scripture, the same gospel where we're told those who stand at the door and knock, um, and it shall be open for them. That we've got a lot going on with all these images, but it seems to be suggesting that it's for us to be ones who expect this return of Christ, to be the ones who receive the invitation, who go out with the other virgins, the other church members, and bring enough of the identity sort of, um, to, to have enough of identity and connection to Christ so that when he comes and we greet him with those lights, that we are welcomed into the feast, that we remain in fidelity there. And that is um, a hard teaching for us. Uh, how do we begin to expect this, to wait for this, to move into that spot? But as I was reading uh, the end of or church dogmatics which there is no end because he died before it was done and it's my copy is 31 volumes david's is 14 volumes so as i was reading church dogmatics portion of it on this week again well nerdy um 
he said that he says that the church is to be a community of the last time and that Jesus's first coming that culminates in his resurrection is that which drives us forward and Jesus's second coming that time of or sorry yeah drives us forward um, that time of, of parousia, um, that time of his return, is that which is pulling us forward. And, and Bart, in his wisdom, is always trying to say that we don't contain these things in ourselves. It's that initial spark of the resurrection that gives us hope of this renewal of all things, this, this time when Christ is going to return, that empowers us into our Christian living. And on the reverse, it's this second coming that, that, the, that we can anticipate. And neither one of those we self-contain. And here's the error in this, is that if you think that initial one, that resurrection, if you're like, the resurrection is it. That is the main point. What begins, I think, to happen is, is one of many things, but the example I'll give is, is that you begin to think it's your job to make the last time become this world. Eric Vogelin has this great phrase that he used often, um, in dialogue with Marxists, but with many people at works, is don't try to imitize the eschaton. Don't try to make the last things present today. Defiance Church, I say it over and over again, that we are a witness to the reconciling work of, of God, not the reconciling work of God. We're not that thing ourselves, but we are a witness to it. And so if you cut off the parousia, the return, that, that pulling force forward, you begin to think it's what we make in the world. We need to get busy. If you cut off that Christ is going to return, or if you, if you cut off the resurrection, if you begin to become so focused on what Christ is going to return, your ethics become wonky in weird ways. You'll hear this um, classically with certain Christians around um, environmental concerns, it's all going to burn up anyways, why should I do anything? Um, forgetting that God was born in a body in this place, resurrected in this place, and that there is goodness here, that God created it. You begin to, to set up whatever your picture is of the end as a way to not be doing things in the present. Or you begin to think you're already at the end. This is in the early church, those who wouldn't work as we talked about because God is coming tomorrow. And they begin to say that marriage and this and infidelity, it doesn't mean anything because we're already fully realized in that moment. So that, this one particular is a danger for the church because you begin to think the church is already there. The gospel of Matthew has taught us several times that there are wolves within the church. There are false prophets within the church. The church is not already at that moment but it can be a witness to that moment, that it can witness to the resurrection and to that coming to work. And this is, again, with Bart, the, the way in which these both become real to us in the present is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit makes the Christ who is resurrected near to us, and it makes that same one who is coming again, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father to judge the living and the dead, also near to us. But in the Spirit's work, it's not contained within us. And so it is for us to stay awake, to keep watch, because we do not know the day or the hour. 
Um, the quote on the back of the bulletin I'll close with. Um, when Jesus calls on his disciples to keep watch, he is calling on, on them to take the reality of God so seriously that they can come to terms with its sudden appearance at any moment within their lives, precisely because they know that this reality will one day come unboundedly in the kingdom of God. In confession, um, and in deep trial this week as I was sitting uh, on a chairlift by myself uh, thinking about this quote is to take so seriously um, the reality of God. Um, it just seems oftentimes it's easier to be like the wiser one. Those end time freaks, I, I think it's better if we call them parousia freaks, um, uh, don't contain it well enough. It's easier to put this off. But what does it mean for me and this is probably more personal, to bring back the cross pressures of, of this moment to my life, to say that what does it mean tomorrow? Um, there's a great uh, quote misattributed to Martin Luther, is that when asked if he knew Jesus was returning tomorrow, what would he do today? And he said, plant an apple tree. Um, and it's sort of this way in which saying that like the, the reality of it coming doesn't neglect the work in the present, but it's still something beautiful that, that goes into the reality that's coming too. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but that's, that, that's hard for me um, because it demands something more in the present. Uh, uh, it means getting your oil, getting more oil, and going out and awaiting, taking time to take a nap, but awaiting that call for when the bridegroom is here and to come out and meet him and to be able to have oil and to go into that moment. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Let us pray. God, you have called a community into the world that is to alight, enlighten a path to greet you in your return. May our church and the people who make up this place be those wise bridegrooms, those wise virgins whom are enlightened by the oil of your spirit in fidelity to you in personal relationship and in good deeds for your cross is a fruit-bearing tree. May we be those people, this body on earth, that is expectant of your arrival. Delay or no delay. May we keep watch. And in the time in between, be a witness to the reality that you are bringing into this world. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.